This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today Aaron and Greg and I are going to be talking about mountain bike suspension. Specifically, we're going to be talking about the important stuff that you need to know about mountain bike suspension to get the best performance out of your mountain bike on the trail. So I'm going to start off the discussion talking about the history of mountain bike suspension because I really don't know a whole lot about how suspension works. So I'm going to be just like a lot of our listeners and I'm going to be learning, but I do know how to use the internet and how to research things. So mountain bike suspension dates back to 1987, which Depending how old you are, that sounds like a long time ago or maybe not so long ago. But in 87, a man named Keith Bontrager and another guy named Paul Turner showed a full suspension mountain bike at Interbike. Believe it or not, Interbike was around back then. And according to Wikipedia, the industry was not impressed with the full suspension mountain bike. So seemed to be an idea that was sort of before its time. But Paul Turner was a big motorcycle guy, and he knew how important suspension was for motorcycles. So he kept tinkering, and eventually in 1981, he created the RS1 fork, uh, which stood for the RockShox 1. Paul Turner started RockShox and basically started with that fork in 89, and then rear suspension followed fairly quickly. Early forks used air with oil return, And then within a few years later, they were experimenting with elastomers, uh, but those eventually fell out of favor. And today you see forks with air and coil shocks. So let's dive right into the purpose of mountain bike suspension. Now we talked about the history of it. Why were people interested in it and what does it do? So the basic idea behind mountain bike suspension is to help keep the wheels of your mountain bike on the ground. And keeping your wheels on the ground through uneven terrain essentially helps improve the control that you have over your mountain bike. Because if your wheel is not touching the ground, if it's chattering up and off the ground and then back onto it, you don't have that connection to control what you're trying to do. And improved control allows you to ride faster, more confidently, less risk, and arguably have more fun. So what is suspension at its most basic? Essentially, the basic components of any fork or shock are a spring and a damper. The spring is going to be what absorbs the impacts, and the damper is what controls the spring. And the reason it's important to have both pieces of that is if you just had a spring but no damper, it'd be like riding a pogo stick. The spring would act unpredictably to the terrain, which is obviously not ideal when you're mountain biking. You'll hear this principle talked about sometimes with uh, fat bike tires. If you run a pressure that is too high, the tires bounce around a lot on the trail and they act as undamped suspension. So the air inside the tire is acting as a spring, but there's no mechanism to control that spring. Glad you use that as an example because, yeah, a lot of people do confuse the two and they'll say, oh, having a fat bike's just like having suspension, but it's not. Yeah, it's uh, no, it's it's not. 
Yes. Okay. So let's go through a brief overview of the parts of a suspension fork. The steerer tube, what's that, Greg? This is a tube that runs up through the headset and the head tube of your mountain bike that the stem connects to. So this is the part of the fork that actually goes into the mountain bike. Moving down from there, you have the crown of the fork. And that basically is just a metal piece that connects the steerer tube to the stanchions. And now when we get stanchions, they start to do more. These are, um, again, two metal tubes, but they're covered in generally some sort of slippery coating, and they go in and out of the lowers. Yeah, that's right. And then moving down, you have the lowers, and that's what, as Greg said, that's what the stanchions slide in and out of, and you have seals and wipers inside the lowers, and that keeps the stanchions clean and lubricated, lubricated because if you think about it, you know, you're know you constantly getting dust and dirt on those um, on those stanchions and you wouldn't want that in the lower part of your fork. So that's why you have, uh, seals and wipers. And then moving down further, you've got the axle and that's just, uh, simply what holds the wheel to the fork, joins the legs together. Uh, most forks today are going to use a through axle for increased stiffness. Generally speaking, it's a 15 millimeter through axle. There are some, some, uh, longer travel forks with 20 millimeter through axles, but generally Pretty much all bikes are using 15 millimeter. Quick releases used to be much more common, but uh, you're seeing that less and less even on road bikes and gravel bikes and things like that. Pretty much all forks, even rigid forks, have moved to some sort of through axle system now. Right. Okay. Briefly, what about a shock? What are the parts on that? Yeah. Uh, essentially, if you think about it, a shock is like a tiny single leg fork. Still have all the same basic components. You have a spring and a damper. It's just in a smaller package. So with an air shock, you have an air canister and the body of the shock slides in and out of that. And the body, it's like a little mini stanchion tube, but that houses your compression and rebound dampers. Right. Very cool. So what about spring types? This seems to be a big distinction between different shocks and forks too forks have forks are all just air right no i mean the majority of them are going to be air but there's there's certainly coil forks as well today so like as you mentioned earlier we basically have two types of springs you have an air and you have a coil and air works as a spring because as you compress air it resists being compressed further a coil spring is an actual metal spring uh, most likely that's going to be steel but there's also titanium springs uh for mostly like racing applications or if you just want to kind of pimp out your bike. Yeah, so air, the more you compress air, the more it resists that compression. And this is why you'll hear people refer to air forks and air shocks as having a progressive spring rake. That means it's progressively harder to compress as you move through the travel. Now, coil springs have a linear spring rate. So neither is necessarily better or worse than the other as long as you're using the right one for the application. You know, particularly speaking of rear shocks, companies design their suspension platforms kind of around one or the other. There are some bikes that you can run either a coil or an air shock on, but that's kind of the exception rather than the rule. Um, you know, coil shocks are seeing a bit of a resurgence recently, but you should always check with the manufacturer before putting one on a bike. For instance, I tried to run a coil shock on my Kona Process, but it wasn't really designed for it the way the suspension linkage was uh, it needed that progressiveness the progressive nature of an air shock and when i tried to run a coil shock on it there wasn't enough progression in the coil to resist bottoming out so 
uh, I had really good traction. You know, some of the benefits that you think of typically when you get a coil is really supple. So that was great off the top end, but I was blowing through the travel. So, you know, air has some advantages over coil as well. Uh, namely, air is lighter than metal, but it's also easier to adjust the spring rate. And if you have an air fork or an air shock, all you need to do is grab a shock pump, add a few PSI or let a few PSI out. And it's a little more complicated when you're talking about coil suspension. So if you want to change the spring rate on a coil suspension component, whether that is a fork or a shock, you have to take them apart and swap out the actual physical spring. It's relatively easy to do this on a rear shock since the coil spring is external, but with a fork, you'd actually have to open up the fork to do it. So this isn't something you could really do trail side or if you're going to be riding different types of trails, you know, you can't, that's not really an option with coil. So adjusting your suspension just becomes a more involved process and it's more expensive because you actually have to buy multiple springs if you need them, whereas air is free. You just talked about the two different spring types. You've got air and coil. What's the other side of that? It's damping, right? What is damping and how does that work? Yeah, so damping is the other part of a shock absorber, like I said earlier, and it's damping, not dampening. As a, a Suntour used to have these shirts, the SR Suntour is a fork company, they had uh, these shirts that said, damping makes you fast and dampening makes you wet. So <laughs> it's just a little pet peeve, but they're, they're different things. Anyway, as we said earlier, you know, suspension requires a spring and a damper, and you have two forms of damping. You have compression and you have rebound damping. So compression damping controls how fast or slow your suspension will react to inputs. So in general, too little compression will have the bike wallowing into its travel while too much will make it feel harsh. Now rebound damping controls how fast or slow your suspension returns. So if your rebound is too slow, you have too much rebound damping the bike's going to get overwhelmed by successive impacts because it's not returning to the sag point in between each hit. And this is sometimes referred to as packing up. It's not a good place to be because you're continuing to sink in your suspension travel and your bike doesn't have any suspension travel left to uh, you know take on new inputs. But on the flip side, if you have too little rebound damping, i.e. your suspension is returning too fast, your bike is going to be harsh and really bouncy, which is not good either. Right, and the whole name of the game with suspension is making sure that it's tracking the terrain. And so, yeah, if you're skipping over stuff, that's not good. And if you're like falling into stuff, that's not good either. So, yeah, getting suspension dialed is all about getting the right settings there. And so that's what we're going to talk about. Have you heard that the Single Tracks podcast just turned 150? That's right. We're old cats at this. And to celebrate, we wanted to do a contest. So if you're listening to this podcast, we'd love for you to go to singletracks.com slash podcast 150 and enter in your email address for a chance at some really cool prizes. We've got prizes from SR Suntour, Box Components, Jensen USA, Sombrio, WTB, and Adventuron. So go to singletracks.com slash podcast 150. That's podcast 150. Enter your email address and we'll hold the drawing on February 1st, 2018 to pick the winners. Thanks for listening. And we're back. 
So I know for me, there are a lot of settings on forks and shocks that can seem a little overwhelming and a little bit confusing. So I wanted to talk about what those settings are, what are the dials that you can fiddle with, and what do they all mean? So let's start off with SAG. What is the SAG setting? What does that do, Greg, and how do you measure it? So SAG relates to the air pressure that you put in your shock, if we're talking about air suspension. And now your air pressure is going to be dependent on rider weight. And if you have your shock or your fork set properly, you'll have a certain amount of what we call SAG in it. And this basically means that uh, if you look at your fork, your entire stanchion tube won't be extended when you're sitting on it. Part of it will be inside the lowers of your fork. And now the purpose of SAG is essentially, again, to help keep your fork on the ground. The way I best understand it is having a little bit of SAG, which is uh, depending on your fork or your shock and your component varies a bit, anywhere from about 25 to 33%. But that provides a little bit of room to allow the fork to extend into negative space on the trail to continue to follow the ground. Or at least that's the way I like to think about it. So if you're going down the trail and you encounter a hole, your sag will allow your fork to extend and stick to the ground instead of, again, skipping over that hole. I like to think about it as the opposite of smacking into a rock. So it can go down and out if you need it to. It can also have some other benefits like uh, you don't need to overcome the initial stiction of your fork, each impact, if you're already sagged into it just a little bit. Those are what I think are the main benefits and purposes behind it. Yeah, definitely. That makes sense. I think, like you said, it, it can seem counterintuitive at first because beginning riders might think, you know, they have a set amount of suspension and they want to have all of it available. But yeah, you really want to start out sort of into your suspension a little bit so that you can, your bike can react to that negative space and the wheel can extend down while keeping your handlebars up. So yeah, the whole example is great. Okay, Aaron, what about compression? That's another pretty common setting on most forks. What is the compression setting all about? Yeah, basically you have two types of compression. You have high speed and low speed compression, although high and low doesn't necessarily refer to how fast or slow you're moving on the trail. That refers to how fast the shock of the fork or the shaft of the fork or shock is moving. So high speed compression is going to come into play on big impacts. You know, think landing from a drop or a jump, or if you're smacking into a rock at speed. Anytime that the suspension needs to get out of the way fast, that's high speed compression. Basically, the high speed compression you know, helps keep you from bottoming out. And typically only the most expensive forks and shocks are going to have an external adjuster for this. Most uh, suspension components are set from the factory at a certain level. Adjusting it is possible, but it would require disassembling the shock or fork and making changes to stuff like the shim stack inside. So a little outside of the scope of this. And then on the flip side, you have low speed compression. So that's when the shaft of the suspension component is moving more slowly. So this is inputs from your body. You know, This is when you're pedaling, when you're pumping through rolling terrain, just instances like that. So it's when you're kind of, your body is affecting the suspension. So most forks and shocks are going to have a knob or dial to adjust the low speed compression. And this is usually the blue knob. I think it's blue on basically most brands. I know like it is on uh, Fox and I think it is on RockShox as well. I just watched an interview with Pete Gustafsson of Fox, and he was explaining high-speed compression 
you know, same way Aaron was, but his key example was going through braking bumps or rocks at really high speeds, which created that fast shaft speed. And that really helped me, I guess, to like understand, all right, you know, there's a lot of high speed movement of that shaft taking place. So I thought that was really interesting. Right. Yeah. Cause it is, it can be a little confusing because you think like, oh, well, the shaft, if I'm moving fast, the shaft is going to be moving fast. And generally that's probably true if you're hitting a lot of stuff while you're moving fast, but you could also be moving slow and have a high shaft speed. Like if you dropped off a six foot boulder to flat ground, you know, you just did like a wheelie drop and you weren't going very fast at all, you know, so you're not moving that quickly, but when you hit the ground, that shaft is. So that's why, you know, it can be a little confusing because it's high speed and low speed, but it doesn't always refer to the speed that the rider's traveling. Right. And it could be the obstacles too, right? Like if you have a lot of sharp rocks that are spaced close together versus far apart, then it's the spacing and it's not necessarily your speed that you're hitting it at, but it's, yeah, how often the shock has to react to those bumps in a period of time. Okay, so we talked about sag and we talked about compression. Another setting that may sound familiar to people, but perhaps they don't know exactly what it refers to, is the rebound setting. So Aaron, again, since you're our expert on this, what's rebound all about? <laughs> no, don't don't pin me as the expert here. But uh, okay, so rebound, like compression, you have two types of rebound. You have high-speed rebound and low-speed rebound. So high-speed rebound is going to take effect on big hits when you're using a majority of your suspension travel. And high-speed is generally one of those things, again, that's going to be set at the factory and is not user-adjustable unless you have a really fancy shock or fork. Low-speed rebound is found on basically every shock and fork, and it's typically the red dial or knob. And that's going to come into play during the vast majority of your ride when your suspension is compressing less than two-thirds of the way. So low-speed rebound, it's really important to get right. That's why you have that knob there. can be a little confusing, again, because if you're increasing your rebound damping, you're slowing down the rate of return. But if you decrease rebound damping, that speeds up the rate of the return. So that's why I like how RockShox, they use a, a jackalope and a tortoise on their adjusters because if you want your fork or your shock to return faster, you just turn it the way that you need to. Or if you know if you want to go faster, you turn towards the jackalope. If you want to go slower, you turn it to the tortoise. Yeah, that makes sense. What I mean, I guess the problem is what's the opposite of damping? Like that if you could use that word, it would make sense. But nobody knows what it is apparently. Undamped? <laughs> Undamping. So you're yeah. You're, well, you, well you're always gonna have you yeah, you could either have absolutely no damping, right? And then your fork would be returning way too fast and then you know you, you you've lost one essential component of of a shock absorber but if you have too much damping you know i mean you, you we've probably all done this if you like turn your uh rebound like all the way closed or all the way to you know the most most rebound damping and you press your fork down and it returns ridiculously slowly like no one's ever going to ride their bike like that mm-hmm. yeah that makes sense. One other thing that people can adjust on certain forks and shocks is the air volume. So talk a little bit about that, Aaron. What, what's that setting about and what does it do? Yeah, thankfully this is something suspension companies have made it much easier to adjust. This is typically done, uh, typically it's something any home mechanic can do. You don't really need a whole lot of mechanical aptitude. 
It's basically letting the air out of your fork or your shock. You open it up and you add or subtract volume spacers. Sometimes they're called tokens or pucks, but they serve the same purpose, and that is to take up space inside the air chamber. So adding spacers is going to decrease the air volume in the chamber, and doing so makes the suspension more progressive. While if you remove spacers, that makes your suspension relatively more linear. I mean, we're still talking about air suspension, so it's all relative. But yeah, that's essentially what it does. So if your sag is set correctly, but you still find that you're blowing through your travel, you should try adding spacers to give you more what they call ramp up, more progression at the end of your stroke. And alternately, if you can't use full travel, uh, you might try taking apart your your fork or shock and removing any volume spacers that are in there. Gotcha. One of the other settings that I've kind of wondered about is the lockout on a front fork. What does that do exactly? What is it locking out or what is it basically adjusting for you? I mean, my understanding is it's just essentially closing off your compression circuit completely. So it's just not allowing the fork to compress at all. Okay. Some, some, I guess some too, though, will actually have multiple settings, right? You can like go to full-ish lockout to wide open. So what are the things like in between? I mean, you can never fully lock out a fork or hopefully you can't. Some you can. It's, I guess it depends on the kind of bike you're riding. Um, I typically, I don't like to do too many adjustments while I'm riding, especially with the fork. I just tend to leave the fork wide open because why wouldn't you? But uh, <laughs> both Fox and Rock Shocks do have uh, multi-position compression settings. So they have some sort of platforms, typically three positions. You have all the way open and then you have a pedaling platform, which is a little bit more um, compression. So if you are standing up and you're, you're pedaling, you're not, you know, transmitting a lot of energy through the fork and then fully locked out. But again, I mean, if you want a locked out fork, you should be riding rigid. <laughs> right. Those basically are doing compression then, I yes. guess, right? They're kind of preset values for compression. Yes, exactly. Basically, that lever is like making your low-speed compression like easier to understand. So that's essentially the LSC lever. Got it. Cool. So now let's talk about some specific tips for getting suspension dialed. Obviously, this is going to be tough on a podcast because everybody's different and you know some of the stuff is probably makes more sense, especially if you're a visual learner or uh, whatnot. But at least this will give you some ideas for how to get started and maybe can refer to some resources that are helpful as well. So Greg, what's your first tip for getting your suspension dialed? What's the first thing you set on a fork or a shock? Probably the number one thing you need to do is to begin by setting up your sag properly. So here's a quick and dirty sag setting guide. And like Jeff said, we do have some videos of this on single tracks, so that could be good. But here's the basics. So you need a shock pump to do this. So if you don't have one already and you didn't get one with your bike, you'll need to go out and purchase one. So begin by following any recommended settings that might be printed on the suspension, in your manual, on the website, in the associated app. And these are basically recommended starting points depending on your weight. So again, a big shout out to RockShox for making this really simple. RockShox, pretty much every product they sell has a small chart with recommended pressure settings, again, based on rider weight, printed on the fork or the shock. Shocks, maybe not. 
It depends on the shock, I think. But even if they don't have that, they have markings on the shaft of the fork and the shock to, with uh, percentages to show how much percent of your fork you're using. And this will be really important in about two minutes. So after putting the initial amount of air in, you want to reset the O-ring on your suspension component. And for the shock, sit on the bike and then without bouncing, get off and check your reading. You're looking for, again, about 30 to 33% sag for most shocks. And for your fork, this is a little bit trickier because you need to reset the O-ring, but really you'll need to be slowly rolling so you can get your body weight over the front of your bike, directly over your handlebars as if you're descending. Because if you're sitting back on your seat like you're pedaling up a hill, that's not when you want your fork to be active. So you've got to make sure you are weighting the front end pretty similarly to you would in a riding situation. And generally, you're looking for around 20 to 25% sag on your fork according to GMBN, which I realized as I was doing research, I probably screw up. Well, not that I screw up, but before I used to set my fork to about 30% and then it wouldn't be stiff enough and then I end up at 25% eventually. And then now I know why. So that brings up a good point though. These are just starting points. So your sag amount can vary slightly depending on the product, how you're riding it, and a few other things like if you ate a lot for lunch, if you're carrying more water. So even if you think you have it perfect based on the chart, you might need to adjust it down the road. So especially for the first few rides, I recommend carrying your shock pump with you to be able to make changes out in the trail. So if you're bottoming out too easily, add a little bit more pressure. If you're not using all of your fork travel, even on the biggest features like you'll ever ride, try letting out a little bit of air and so you can use more of your travel. Aaron mentioned before that you can adjust your air volume. That's like the next step. If you can't get it just right with your sag, then you sort of go on to tokens and adjusting those things out a little bit. So that's the short version. Hopefully that'll get your sag rolling. Yeah, that's good. And you bring up a good point too, that setting all of these settings, you know, sag, especially it may seem like it's, you know, should just be based on your weight. I mean, you'll see these charts that show rider weight and they'll give you kind of a recommended air pressure value value to start with. But the actual settings that you're going to end up with are based on a lot of things, right? So it's your personal preference, but it could also be your course that you're riding, the trail that you're riding, the type of riding you're doing on any given day. So how, once you find these settings, what is your guys' thoughts on sort of how permanent those settings are versus, you know, them being kind of a moving target depending on how you're feeling or where you're riding? I think that really depends on the kind of rider you are, if you are somebody that likes to adjust things a lot. But I think once you've found your your happy place on your suspension, sometimes it's easier just to get used to riding that and getting really familiar with how your bike rides in a variety of situations. I mean, if you're riding drastically different terrain, then yeah, it probably is worth you know revisiting some of your ses- uh, your settings but it shouldn't be there shouldn't be drastic changes i guess i mean if you're going from riding you know a flow trail here in georgia and then you're going to go you know descend pike's peak like yeah you probably want to do some different things with your suspension but if you're kind of riding in the same general area and i mean it's not something you're going to need to change day to day Okay. How portable are your settings then? If you know, for example, you know, on a Fox 34, I like a certain pressure, but then I go demo a bike, maybe it's a slightly different bike. 
are those same pressures going to work for me there or is it kind of dependent on other factors? With forks, you can probably get pretty close, but uh, with with the shocks, it's a whole different story because that all depends on what type of you know suspension design the manufacturer is using. So, you know, that's why there's always like a baseline. That's why you always set your sag and then you kind of go from there. But you can't say like, oh, I ride a Fox float on my bike and I run 180 PSI in it. So this is a totally different bike with a Fox float on it. I'm going to run 180 PSI in it. It's not that simple. Right. Okay. So let's talk about some of the other settings. Again, in a general sense about sort of how you find the right settings for you. Aaron, talk a little bit about bracketing. What is that all about? How does that work when you're trying to dial in your settings? Sure. Before we talk about bracketing, I would just say it's it's really worthwhile to spend some time setting up your suspension and playing with all those little knobs that are on your bike. I mean, they're there for a reason. But just know that when you're going, when you're, you're setting your settings on your suspension it it's not going to be like a fun ride, you know, like this is going to be something you're going to do by yourself. You know, you don't want like your buddies on a ride where, unless you're all out there tuning your suspension together, which that's cool. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's, you want to, you want to ride like the same piece of trail over and over and you really want to get, uh, you really want to be very thoughtful and aware of, you know, what your bike is doing. So when you're adjusting something, you can ride it and say, okay, like, yes, this is better or this is worse than before. And then you can, you can make adjustments from there. So it's not right. It's not playing too. I mean, it is, you have to be very methodical. I mean, I think I've run into problems when, yeah, just thought, oh, I should just play around with this. And I have no idea what I'm doing, you know, not keeping track of how many clicks I've got it on and what it felt like before and all that stuff. So yeah, got to be methodical and bracketing is one of the ways that you can do that right yeah so just get yourself a little notepad and a pen and head out to the woods try to get a piece of trail that's you know a good sample of what you're going to be riding and you know bracketing is this is is a technique where you start with a particular adjustment like let's say you start with your compression or you start at one extreme you start with your compression all the way open and then all the way closed so you open it all the way you ride a section of trail come back, close it all the way, you ride that same section of trail and you go, which one felt better? And then if it's, you know, all the way open, you go to the halfway in, halfway point in between all the way open and all the way closed. You, you repeat the process, you try that again, you say, all right, which one felt better? And that way, you know, you keep moving closer and closer to what your ideal setting is. And you, know, you just keep repeating that process until you've whittled it down and that just gives you a good baseline and you can make small adjustments either way depending on what you're riding. And that's why it's really helpful to write these numbers down. So you know, you know, if you adjust your rebound, you're like, I'm five clicks from wide open and that works for most of my trails and you're, you're good to go. But maybe if you ride somewhere else and you feel like, you know, maybe your fork's rebounding too fast for the terrain, you can go, you know, do a couple clicks, but then you know what your setting was when you, when you get home. So if you're starting from zero, though, and you're trying to get compression and rebound, and let's say you're starting with compression, where would you put your rebound? Would you just put that one in the middle while you're testing compression and then get to that one later? Or what is there a strategy for that? That's a good question. I suppose you'd leave it. I mean, rebound's probably the one the one to get. It's easier to get it close to right. I think generally most people probably run their rebound a little bit too slow. But um, yeah, I, I would say just 
get your rebound set and you ride around the parking lot, you squish the bike around, make sure when you're pumping down on the bike that it doesn't return too quickly or that it doesn't, you know, obviously the flip side of that, that it doesn't stay sunk down into the travel and then yeah, get your rebound close and then adjust your compression, get it where you like, and then you can go back to your rebound. And that's where there's going to be some give and take, you know, maybe once you have your rebound, right? Like your compression isn't quite what it should be, but then you have a baseline for both and you can, you know, you can work in a, a smaller, smaller variance of clicks in either direction. I think one thing we do need to mention when you're going to adjust your suspension is that we're giving you like tactics you can use for just about anything. But a lot of suspension components don't have adjustability for a lot of these things we're talking about. It's pretty common that you might only have, say, rebound and then this one three position fox lever for compression. And that's like it on your component in addition to air pressure. So, you know, if you have like a three position Fox lever, like you don't need to set your compression, right? You'd like default to open and then you've got two other settings and that's all you've got. And then you've got your rebound. So yeah, you've got to evaluate that a little bit. Yeah. Well, Fox and RockShox, both of them with their, you know, three position compression, they do allow you to adjust the very open setting. So you can adjust the low speed compression in the most open setting on your fork so it's that little like there's like a little on the fox it's like a little tiny black dial inside the blue like switch so there is a ability to adjust um does that at least on mid to higher end fox and rock shock stuff some of the some of the more like entry level forks may just have the uh three position compression with uh no ability to adjust the open setting. And if yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And the those settings too though, a lot of people are going to use those throughout the ride, right? They're going to have it in one setting for climbing and another for descending, right? This isn't like, oh, I just like it in open and I just keep it open all the time or or are you of the mind that you just keep it in one and and go like that the whole way? I I am definitely of the mind that you should get your suspension set up that you don't really need to mess with it. Um, again, particularly but with they the make fork, remotes. I, yeah, well, you know, <laughs> I don't use them, you know, maybe with the shock, if you're, if you're riding a really long gravel road or something like that, like, yeah, maybe I'll reach down and use the like pedaling platform, use that blue compression lever and firm up the feel of the rear suspension. So it's not bobbing as much, but again, probably not going to mess with the fork because if I'm riding up a gravel road, you know, I'm not losing any energy to the fork. I'm not like bobbing my torso up and down unless I'm standing up. So yeah, you know, and then if you're riding on, if you're just riding on trail, I I think your suspension should be open because that's, again, that's why you have suspension. It's there to work. It's there to react to the terrain. And if it's somewhat closed off, then why do you have suspension? Yeah. And another good reason for avoiding, you know, messing with those controls, at least for me anyway, is that I forget, you know, I'll, I'll be doing a climb and I'll yeah. flick it over to something. And then, you know, halfway down the descent, I'll be like, geez, why am I having a hard time yeah. holding on here? And yep, it's everyone, everyone's been there before for sure. Yeah. So that's, that's another good reason to take your advice. These days there is another way that you can get your suspension dialed and that's with using electronic thingamajiggies 
there's this thing called the Shockwiz, right? Aaron, you've played around with that a little bit. How does that work? Um, and what's sort of the, what's the takeaway? What's the reason people might use that? Yeah, so the Shockwiz, it's a, it's a cool little tool. It helps you tune your suspension. Uh, you connect a, a sensor to your fork or shock. Uh, it has like a little, uh, like little thread on fittings that thread on to where you would add air. So this is for, obviously this is for air suspension. Um, and it pairs to an app on your smartphone. So there's some initial setup, uh, which can be a little frustrating. Um, and it doesn't work 100% with every suspension product as I found out the hard way. So anyway, once you get the, the setup done, you go and ride there, you know, there's some different things you can choose in the app, like what you want your suspension to feel like, like if you want it to be more playful and poppy, or if you know, you really are like valuing traction above all else, there's different things, you know, it'll, it'll change its it's tailor, its recommendations uh, on what to adjust. And it'll tell you if you need to adjust your baseline air pressure, it'll tell you if you should adjust your air volume, um, if you should adjust your rebound, et cetera. And it's, it's a really cool tool, but I would caution people on buying one, not, not because it's a bad tool or anything, but for one, it's really expensive. You know, one of these is 400 bucks. So unless you're racing or you just like nerding out, check with your local shop. You might be able to borrow one. I know our favorite local shop here in Atlanta, Loose Nuts, um, they've got a couple of them and they'll lend them out so you can, you know, get your suspension set up. And secondly, and maybe most importantly, to get the greatest benefits of using the ShockWiz, you really need a highly adjustable fork or shock in the first place. So like for instance, let's say, you go out and ride and the app says, hey, you need to adjust the high-speed rebound, but you don't have any way to do that, that's not really helpful and that's not really worth your money, you know? So unless you have, you know, all the knobs and dials to go turning, um, you know, maybe it's, it's not, maybe it's something you should borrow and not buy. But if you do have highly adjustable suspension, the ShockWiz definitely can help you eke out the most performance. Yeah, and just to be clear, the ShockWiz just monitors your shock and gives you recommendations. It doesn't actually adjust anything for you or, you know, make your shock work better. It's, no, it's it not, does not. It's not complete magic. It's, <laughs> yeah, there's, you got to do some work as well. Okay, so finally, we've got everything dialed in and we've got all our settings the way we like them. It's important to note those settings and to check them often, right, Greg? Yeah, especially if you're traveling and you experience a dramatic change in elevation, either up or down, you'll likely need to reset your pressures in your suspension. Um, but as we've talked about, like this adjustment is sort of a constant ongoing thing. You know, earlier, I think Jeff mentioned that you might change things from ride to ride. One of the things I like to just keep track of is how my bike is riding. I'll be riding and I'm constantly evaluating it. And if I'm like, man, I feel like my shock isn't doing X, Y, and Z, like what it should be doing. I'll go check compared to my settings, be like, well, it's been two months since I topped off my air pressure. It's running a little bit soft, you know, so you need to keep on top of that stuff. Yeah, it can pay real dividends as well with your performance. And like Aaron said, you know, keeping it consistent can really help you get a feel for the bike, know how it's going to react in various situations, and it'll just make you a better and more confident rider. Well, we hope that these suspension tips and explanations have been helpful. 
Remember, you can always find plenty of information, including how-to videos and tips and tricks on our website, singletracks.com. And don't forget about the contests going on right now to celebrate our 150-plus podcast episodes. Thank you to all of our listeners, and we'd love to have you enter for a chance at winning some prizes. So again, that's singletracks.com slash podcast 150. That's singletracks.com slash podcast 150. Enter today and we'll email you if you're one of our winners on February 1st, 2018. That's all we have this week. Talk to you next week. Peace.